The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I like to remind you every week that I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We do have a special introductory offer for these newsletters, a one-time only offer, and you can go to miningstocks.com. That's M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com to learn more about that. But actually, the best place to go for everything that I do and my partners do uh, is a website called jtaylormedia.com that's j-a-y-t-a-y-l-o-r media.com without the triple w's there you can go to access this radio show you can access all three of my newsletters and some video ceo video interviews that i did with some companies that i think have outstanding prospects uh, in the in the near future and right now in some cases uh, and also there you can also pick up some of my appearances on cnbc fox bnl bnn and elsewhere so that's, again, jtaylormedia.com without the triple W's. I want to thank our sponsors for making the, uh, the, our sponsors for this show, making it economically viable. They are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, Legend Gold, previously North Atlantic Resources, Cobra Resources, Brigus Gold, Palangio Exploration, and Great Panther Silver Limited. Also want to thank you, each of you, for listening to the show and telling your friends. Because of you, you have made this the number one show in the voice uh, on the voice american uh, voice america business channel as always this week we have a very busy schedule so we're going to get right into it i'm going to really minimize my remarks i'll have a lot more to say later in the show uh starting to the, during the first hour our main guest this week will be marshall arbach he is a hedge fund economist out of uh, denver uh, Marshall's views are not typical of the views on this show, I would, I dare say, because he comes to us with more of a pro-Keynesian bent than most of our guests, who tend to be more Austrian-leaning 
uh, thinkers. But Marshall is an independent thinker. He doesn't simply regurgitate conventional wisdom. That is for sure. And he has a very open mind with respect to Austrian economics, has a lot of good understanding of Austrian economics, which is more than you can say for most people. Keynesian proponents these days. I think you will enjoy and also profit from his ideas. Let me suggest you won't dare miss what Marshall has to say about politics, economics, and where he thinks you should put your money going forward into the future. As always on this show, we not only talk about theoretical economic views, but we also focus on ideas about how you can make money and protect yourself uh, in some very un uh, uncharted waters, economically speaking, and I dare say politically speaking as well. In just a couple of minutes, I will be talking also to Scott Waldy uh, of Legend Gold Corp. That was previously known as North Atlantic Resources. That's a company with some outstanding drill results in Mali. I think also a company that has very outstanding potential. And let me just say uh, again that I believe this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares uh, because of some economics that I'll uh, hope to talk to you more about. Uh, later in the show, and what I and, and some ideas that I've passed on to you before. I should mention in the second hour of today's show, I will be talking to my two partners for the entire hour. I'll have Chen Lin, uh, who always finds unique ways to make money and lots of it. Chen is just uh, really outstanding. Uh, and Roger Wiegand, whose focus is mostly on the futures markets, will also be with me. Uh, and then Roger will stick around uh, for some time into the third hour, and I expect to talk more to him about some of. Uh, some of his ideas about the global markets, uh, some of the main markets, and, and maybe some more technical analysis on some of those markets. And I expect to give you some of my favorite stocks and ideas also uh, in the third uh, hour of today's show. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about mining economics and some of the key concepts that you need to be aware of when you buy mining shares, and in particular gold mining shares. Then to round out today's show, I will be talking to the CEO of Sphere Resources. It's another company that is recommended in my newsletter, and one I think has great prospects. We're going to be talking to the CEO of that company. And finally, in the very closing moments of today, we're going to have Ted Ohashi. He's a former Canadian securities analyst and also a media guy. He is also, uh, along with me, on the... Uh, uh, on the advisory board of Investment Pitch, that's a media company out of Vancouver that I think has a great deal of promise. Ted will also talk to you a little bit about uh, a, an investment prospect in Belize, uh, and that's a gold mining prospect that Ted is um, involved with. Uh, and also, there are some uh, there is a private placement opportunity for this still private company for accredited investors. So Ted will talk to you about that. Probably also share some of his ideas about the stock market uh, and the markets in general. So we have a very exciting show, lots to talk about, so we're going to go right to commercial break right now, and as soon as we come back, we will begin our discussion with Scott Waldy of Legend Gold Corp. Don't go away, we'll be right back with Scott Waldy. Experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Scott Waldy. He is the president and CEO of Legend Gold Corp., previously known as North Atlantic Resources. Legend Gold Corp. trades under the symbol LGN. 58.8 million shares of stock outstanding, recently trading at about 53 cents, giving it a market cap of just a little over $30 million. Well, welcome, uh, Scott, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Really good to have you uh, to talk to us about your exciting prospects in Mali, West Africa. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Mali. What are the virtues of Mali that caused you to explore for gold in that country? Well, it, it started off as, as a circumstance of, of convenience. Our present uh, vice president of exploration is a Malian national who uh, was a, a senior exploration executive at, uh, and geologist at BHP Minerals. Um, and we formed the original North Atlantic uh, resources around uh, 
the properties he brought to us from Mali. So we, we piggybacked onto his knowledge um, and database in Mali, but we found out happily that Mali was just a great place to work and that the business case uh, histories of mining companies that discover and and mine there are excellent and seamless. That uh, security of title and and the uh, the business environment is 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 excellent. Are there some major companies, then, I suppose BHP or some other large um, world class companies that that our listeners would recognize that are yeah, B- in Mali? Yeah, uh, BHP is no longer there, which is how Ambogo came to us, but uh, Anglo Ashanti is a big miner there, and both um, IM Gold and Rand Gold got their start uh, in Mali, and both are actively still exploring and mining in, in Mali. And in fact, I think uh, most of Rand Gold's production and, uh, uh, and reserves are in the Republic of Mali, although they're branching out elsewhere in Africa. Oh. Good. Well, um, you have a flagship property. I understand it's called the FT Gold Project. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? You uh, you do have a 43101 resource there. Could you tell us about that, the size of the resource, and, and then we want to ex- get a little idea of what the upside exploration potential is there. Yeah, the the global resource there is is 600,000 ounces at at a gram. It's mixed uh, approximately equally between indicated and inferred resources and we we made that uh, the discovery hole in 2004 and drilled it off primarily in 2005 part of 2006 and came out with uh, our 43101 compliant resource in 2007 um We've since done some infill drilling on the project. We haven't updated the resource. Uh, we have increased its size, but not enough to uh, to really justify a new 43101 resource on that. But it's part of a, a larger property. The, the company got really excited by its discovery. And when I took over in 2007, I looked at this property, of uh, which at the time was over 600 square kilometers, is now... Uh, 510, I believe, and realized that there were there were literally dozens of untested anomalies throughout the property, mm. and we had a, a deposit at a gram with some much higher grade units within the deposit, and we we backed up a step and said, look, what what do we what do we do here? Do we advance this this uh, this deposit? Or do we look around the, uh, the rest of the property and try and come to some understanding of what sort of geological potential do we have here? Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been doing uh, through the lean years of 2007, particularly 2008 and 2009, mm-hmm. but we didn't have much of a budget. We mined our own data mm-hmm. and uh, completed detailed geochem studies and did some auger drilling so that when we were able to get cashed up in uh, in early 2010 we were ready to come out the gate and start drilling mm. so so we look at this 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 flagship in in two aspects one is exploration potential and the other is uh, the fact that the the discovery risk has been removed from the property we've got a, a deposit there we're starting to put a pitch shell around this thing now and look at a uh, a modest mining scenario while we build resources elsewhere on the property. Well, talk to us a little bit then about the about what you've discovered in terms of you know mining your own data. Are you seeing one gigantic system here, or there's a, a number of different systems? Is this something that could get 
that might have very large scale potential, or are these are these separate uh, geological events, these various deposits? Well, no. I think what we have in terms of of the the large uh, the larger area of the property, which I think of as it's about 14 kilometers north to south, maybe 15, and about eight kilometers broad. It's an area roughly analogous to Canada's uh, Kirkland Lake Gold hmm. Camp mm-hmm. in size, mm-hmm. and there are several northwest trending parallel to subparallel um, uh, structures that transect the the geology of the project. And we see gold anomalies and, and get some pretty good gold intercepts in the drills in, in almost every one of these that we have tested to date. Mm. And and we're working really the way the circumstances have come about. We have uh, an area in the south of the property and an area in the north where the deposit lies, and we're working to infill all the stuff in the middle. Mm. But, it, no, it's not all one contiguous uh, uh, zone, but we do see uh, numerous potential for numerous satellite deposits. Mm. Now, I gather if you're talking about a gram per ton uh, in your resource of 600,000 ounces, that you're probably looking at an open pit situation. Yes, we are. We're looking at uh, a modest uh, oxide resource. There's a, there's not a tremendous amount of oxide material here, and then uh, quickly into into the sulfide, which is. Our analog was the Marilla mine, about 70 kilometers to the northeast, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and Marilla was a sulfide deposit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other th- interesting thing about FT so far is that our petrographic work, that is our microscopic analysis, indicates uh, that this is so far all free milling gold. Mm. It's gold in the native state. Now, we still have to do our MET studies and, and take larger samples to confirm this, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, which we'll be doing this this drill season, but uh, our confidence is high that milling will be uh, fairly straightforward and, and not complicated. Well, that is always always a concern and always a very positive thing if it if it turns out to be true because it can have so much to do with the capital cost and so forth, right? So, um, so you are so you are actively engaged in a drilling program now. How many uh, meters are you drilling, and how soon might investors look to see some assays? Uh, we're, we plan to drill up to 20,000 meters on the FT property. Um, yeah, we're, we're drilling. We're starting to drill in the south, and we'll drill. We'll work our way towards the north as we develop our, our geochem anomalies and to cover off some anomalies we see immediately adjacent to the deposit. So we're drilling from south to north um, up to 20,000 meters, and the first results uh, will be due very shortly. We started drilling uh, before Christmas, and we've been waiting to infill our our, our immediate fence lines of, of drill holes before making a release, and, and we're just about there hmm. for the first batch of holes. So, so you'll have some metallurgical studies coming out. Uh, would you be looking to establish a, a, a much larger resource before you start to do some scoping or economic studies? Um, no, I don't. It depends on what we come up with in, in part and, and what we come up with in exploration. But if we start just from the resource that we have today, um, the answer would be no. It's it's not large enough to really deserve a tremendous amount more drilling. What we would do is is uh, plan a small pit, 
and a small mining plant and start there and, and segue into a, a larger uh, mining scenario as we gain understanding. It's really a question of the size of the deposit versus the amount of dollars you spend in expiration, or do you take that money and, and get right into an open pit uh, and a small mining plant scenario um, right away and use the pit as your expiration tool on mm -hmm. the deposit? Sure, and, and, and uh, of course, its size, this I think is the more uh, uh, the, the brighter way to go about it. Sure. So, so is Legend Gold then going to become possibly become a, a producer of gold and not just an exploration company, a producer on a small scale, and then maybe build ounces and, and look for something bigger longer term? Is that a prospect? It's a prospect, uh, but I think practically speaking, uh, our strength is in exploration, property generation, property acquisition. We have a strong um, national team uh, that is, is used to and, and uh, our citizens of, of the country and of Africa and, and have a lot of experience there. I think we're best to play off that. Mm -hmm. And if we did go into a production scenario, we might do something like push this down into a, a subsidiary Mm -hmm. and fund it that way and, and populate that with a, uh, a mining crew because I, I think we wouldn't want the burden head office with, with a mining development at this time. Sure. Well, it's good to know there's some other companies there, you know, household name firms that are there operating too that you, that you may be able to team up with, I would guess, sometime in the future as well. Well, that opportunity always exists, and I, we're very close to the point now where we have a, a solid document, a solid batch of information for the deposit and the property so that it makes it easier to talk to potential partners as well. Always important when we're looking at uh, potential mining investments uh, and projects are, uh, is the issue of infrastructure. Talk to us a little bit about the infrastructure uh, adequacy or, or lack thereof um, at your flagship property. At, at FT, at the flagship property, um, the infrastructure in terms of uh, or in the context of Mali and West Africa in general is very good. Uh, one of the large hurdles for many mining companies in West Africa is the access to water, and we're fortunate to be near a very uh, a large river system. Mm. And uh, so the access to water would not be a difficulty. We would need to supply our own power, so that would be uh, diesel gensets. Mm -hmm. Although there is a new um, hydro line plan for that part of Mali that may be uh, beneficial to us down the road, mm -hmm. um, there's good highway access. We're not. We're only a two-hour drive from the capital, uh, so that's uh, access to people and material is is seamless and, and uh, easily obtained. Um, we also mining companies in general and Legend Gold now have a good rapport with the Malian government, and they um, sincerely want to see these projects, both large and small, advanced uh, successfully in their country. It's, it's important to them to get their people employed mm -hmm. and to get the revenue to, to contribute to the GDP. This, mm -hmm. this is, uh, uh, they know why they're there and what they're doing, and, and they want to see mining progress in the country. No doubt about it. Mining is a very basic wealth-creating industry, and uh, and countries that are smart enough to realize that really, really do prosper from it. You have a second project, the um, the Cantella, I think it's called. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and Cantella is, is we now call Cantella uh, La, La Canfla. Okay. And the, the reason for that is that the old Cantella permit 
essentially came up to its uh, drop dead date, its expiry date, and we renewed we we renewed the concession. So what we have there now are two 24 square kilometer concessions. One of them is called uh, Lancafla, and it, its neighbor, its contiguous neighbor, is called Timba. Mm-hmm. And the two of them together make up a uh, 48 square kilometers of mining permits contiguous to the Sadiola Hill Mine and in mm. about 10 kilometers away from, from the Sadiola Open Pit. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Is that uh, it, the relative to the Sadiola, do you see structures that are continuous potentially from the Sadiola complex onto your, onto your claims? Yeah, we're we're smack dab on top of the uh, what I call the mine horizon, which is uh, a contact between uh, volcanics and metasediments and a sedimentary uh, package of rocks. And this is a, a northeast trending uh, line that runs all the way up from the uh, the Sadiola Group's Yatella deposit in the northeast down and onto um, the what we now call the Lancafla permit. And also includes uh, another permit that we have a little farther to the south, the Jukeba. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're very excited at, at uh, Lancafla. It was a property this company drilled in 2003 and 2004, and we haven't done any significant work there uh, recently uh, since 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have two discovery zones on this depo- on this property, mm. uh, and and the Sadiola Mining Group have two. Pits. Well, it's, they've become one contiguous pit now called the mm-hmm. three and four pits, mm-hmm. which are less than a kilometer from our boundary. Hmm. That's, uh, uh, well, we've we've just we've got some extensive termite mound trends uh, in adjacent to and on strike from our our past drilling. So we're really excited with the ability to build some ounces here, and we'll be, I hope, moving quickly to infill drilling at uh, at, at Blankafla. Now, I believe you're going to be doing, uh, if I read correctly, something like 10,000 meters of drilling there, and when might we see some results from that? We won't see that until uh, mid to late spring, sometime in May, I would imagine. We have mm-hmm. to mobilize a, a drill rig to the property, set up the camp, and and, uh, and get started. We're anticipating that for April. Um, so I would imagine that the drill results would start to trickle in around the end of April, early May. Who's uh, who's the operator over at Sadiola? Who's the mining company there? Uh, Anglo Ashanti is the senior partner. I am Gold is the minority partner, and the and Semos, which is uh, a corporation run by the Malian government, are partners at fifteen percent. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, some good some good neighbors there. Some good company. You have also a pipeline uh, project pipeline. Could you just take a minute, perhaps, and share that with our listeners? Well, sure. We have the Jacaba property, which is uh, very close to Cantella, and it's a similar similar story where the the the, the northwest trending mine trend uh, transects a portion of western Mali, and uh, wherever that mine trend is intersected by northeast trending structures that splay off um, a major fault system there, the major regional fault zone. That tends to be an area where that concentrates gold deposition, and so that is true for our Jacaba project, and it's true for Kent, uh, for uh, La Canfla. 
and uh, Sadiola Hill, which is their mine there, and the Atella mine, which was a satellite further off uh, to the northwest from Sadiola. So these are these are very important mine trends, and they've made uh, uh, multi-million ounce deposits in the past. And, and I think you know things are really just getting started there. These these deposits, these camps, uh, tend to get bigger, and I don't think we've we've seen the peak of their life yet. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, on the uh, uh, on your uh, pipeline, uh, do you expect to do some, probably not drilling, but probably start to establish some drill targets there um, this year, or is that something further down the road because you do have two other prominent projects? Well, we'll be starting um, uh, starting some pitting and auger drilling on the Jacaba project in April. Well, it will work out of the, uh, the Lacanfla camp, and we'll be doing some due diligence sampling on two other projects in southern Mali, and we have a third project in southern Mali that's a little more advanced that we're negotiating on at the present time. That's another big property, sort of uh, over 300 square kilometers with hmm. seven significant uh, anomalous belts on it. Hmm. Um, I can't promise the shareholders that that'll come in, but our our history of acquisition and discovery since we got started in Mali in 2002 has been uh, pretty good, and I'm I'm confident that we'll be able to bring uh, another advanced exploration project into the uh, into the mix. Wow, it's a very exciting story, Scott. I I, um, uh, I think this is really something I have to take a closer look at for my uh, subscribers, possibly. With only 58.8 million shares of stock outstanding, a market cap around 30 million dollars. With all of this going on, you can you can kind of see the potential for some real good uh, gains for investors that come in at this time. No promises ever in this business, of course. It's a it's a high risk, high return business. But is there anything else you'd like to to let our uh, listeners know about before we uh, conclude our discussion today? Well, I, I think we have some. I, I think we have some good ideas. I think we have good properties. We have a strong management team, uh, and uh, particularly the guys in Mali have just done a great job since they've been with us um, in in 2002. Uh, the potential to build a, a property of pipelines and the potential to build ounces next to uh, a very large major. Um, it might mean that we don't see significant dilution in the in the company stock for some time to come. That is always a big consideration, always a very, very important thing for people to keep in mind if you're able to uh, uh, to build wealth in the ground and you can fund yourself efficiently, then that's, that's really very important, Scott. I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing this information uh, with our listeners. I think they should know how to get to your website. You're going to have a new website uh, because of your new name, I suppose, but do you know what that site is right now? That will be legendgold.com. Okay, legendgold.com, and I believe there also is a uh, a way that people can click through uh, the banner on our website at the radio uh, show as well to get right through to your website. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm really uh, interested in your story, that's for sure, and I hope our listeners pay attention to you as well. Well, folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back with Marshall Auerbach. Uh, He's a money manager and a strategist for an investment firm out of Colorado. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Marshall Auerbach. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Marshall Auerbach. Marshall is a senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute with 28 years of experience in the investment management business, currently serving as a global portfolio strategist for Madison Street Partners, a Denver-based hedge fund, and as corporate spokesman also uh, and director for Pine Tree Capital, that's a Toronto-based investment financial advisory and merchant banking firm, focused on investing in early-stage micro- and small-cap resource companies. He is also a fellow at uh, Economist for Peace and Security. His previous work experience includes uh, GT Management Asia Limited in Hong Kong, uh, Tideman Investment Group, where he ran an emerging market hedge fund in 1992 through 95, international economics strategist for Venoroso Associates, 
uh, and managing, managing the Prudent uh, Global Fixed Income Fund for Dave, David Tice and Associates in 1992 through 2002. Marshall graduated magna cum laude from uh, Queen's University in 1981 and received a law degree from Corpus Christi College, Oxford University in 1983. Welcome, Marshall, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. Uh, nice to be with you. Really good to have you. Um, as you know, this show, I think you know, a lot of our people, the guests we've had on this show, uh, would be sort of Austrian-leaning thinkers. Uh, some of the names that we've had would be uh, Ron Paul, David Tice, Mark Faber, uh, Doug Casey, Rick Rule, Richard Mayberry. Some of those are some of the names. On the other hand, we've also had some people uh, that have a little different view of the world. Lawrence Kotlikoff, professor from Boston uh, University being one, John Perkins, uh, perhaps considered more to the left side of the political spectrum. Most Austrian uh, friends would have to be uh, typified as pretty much anti-Keynesian in their attitudes these days. Uh, I've known you for a number of years, and I have always thought of you as being more of an advocate of Keynes. Is that an accurate uh, portrayal? Yeah, I think so. Um, in, in, the, in the broadest sense that I uh, have, have supported um, uh, I've tended to emphasize the primacy of fiscal policy over monetary policy, um, and um, I think the, 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 the many of the Austrians I know, and many of them are friends of mine, uh, they, I, I mix with a lot of the same people that you do, Jay, that mm -hmm. uh, they, they tend to have this visceral dislike of any government involvement, mm -hmm. um, or at, at least keep it to a bare minimum. And again, it's, it's grounded on very solid um, libertarian philosophy. It's, uh, not the, it's, it's, a, it's an admirable moral position. I, I, my, my point really is that um, um, you know you, it's, it's a very important component of the economy. You know you've got to look at um, uh, uh, the, the economy from the, from the perspective of, of what I would call the sectoral balances approach. Uh, uh, people like Wynne Godley, Hyminsky, economists like that have focused on that, and it means you've got to look at the interplay between the various sectors of the economy. Government uh, being one of them, uh, the others being uh, the external sector, trade and uh, imports and exports. And the third being the uh, the private household and and and, and corporate sector that, uh, that that's also a very important role. So I think that um, the problem I have in many instances with the the Austrians um, is that they often uh, will tend to focus on the one area, the uh, the, the role of government uh, that it plays in, in fiscal policy, while tending to ignore the impact uh, that um, fiscal policy has, the interplay it has with other parts of the economy. And I always say that you can't get the right um, policy response uh, unless you get uh, um, uh, understand the interaction between uh, amongst these three sectors of the economy. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about fiscal policy. Uh, currently, um, how would you grade the fiscal policy of the Obama administration? Um, I would give it uh, a C minus. I mean, uh, the, the the invidious part of the. Obama administration's uh, position is that um, they didn't do enough at, at, at the beginning of the crisis. We, we lost about a one and a half to two trillion dollars worth of, uh, of uh, private sector output, and uh, they gave us a fiscal stimulus package of 800 billion, which I think um, arrested the decline, helped make things from getting a lot worse, uh, getting to depression-like levels. Um, I, I realize that um, many of the Austrians would say that. Uh, that uh, it did the opposite. It, it just delayed the day of reckoning. I, I don't uh, agree with that because I think uh, we, we tried the alternative in the 1930s and it didn't work very well. But the problem is that he's in a position now where 
because he didn't uh, he oversold the package that so it would get unemployment down significantly uh, you've now got a lot of people who are opponents of government expenditures who say well you know we should have had uh, um, done nothing it wouldn't have been much worse you know all this money's been spent and it's been wasted of course that conveniently ignores the facts and here I think I I am in good company with the Austrians that you know we also gave uh, trillions of dollars of financial uh, guarantees to uh, what I would describe as zombie financial institutions mm-hmm. who should have been shut down nationally Recapitalized uh, much as we did in the 1930s, and much as the uh, the Swedes and Norwegians did in the early 1990s. I think in in that area, I'm I'm, I'm on pretty um, um, similar ground to to the Austrians. So, um, but but the, the the problem that the the, the president now has is having uh, deployed this fiscal. Uh, a war that he's now in a position where he can't uh, really come back for more, especially not with the uh, complexion of the current uh, Congress, and uh, because the the effects were not as as great as they they might have, they were during the 1930s under Roosevelt and and and, and the New Deal. So he's he's made his life politically difficult for him, and, and then frankly, I think he's a he's a fiscal moderate himself and doesn't really understand that um, you know if you, if you, if, you, if the government doesn't um, uh, fill these. Uh, uh, expenditure gaps left by the private sector that there's nobody else that will do it and they will continue to have high unemployment and and uh, and, and stagnating uh, job growth so he should have done more in other words if he if he he, he probably what true or two or three times more fiscal stimulus yeah and maybe politically that wouldn't have been possible but but economically that's where I would have done it and um, you know now people would say well the government would be doing it wastefully you know we could have all sorts of debates on mm-hmm. whether the uh, multiplier effect of of, uh, of um, uh, the government spending it versus giving, say, a $2 trillion tax cut would have been a better way to go. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think there's evidence that points either way. But the point is that, um, you know, I'd be will- more than willing to uh, to meet my Austrian or anti-government friends halfway and say, okay, you think that the government's going to waste the money? We'll give a $2 trillion tax cut and let uh, the, the, the people decide what they want to do with that mm-hmm. money. Maybe it wouldn't have had the same kind of uh, multiplier effect as, as $2 trillion worth of direct government expenditure, but um, it, it would have been more effective than what we had. And it would um, also address the point which I think many Austrians also legitimately make, which is that you know, if you've got a fundamentally corrupt um, um, predator state, a crony capitalist state, then all you're doing by giving the, letting the government spend the money is uh, encourage what they call malinvestment. I don't really um, find that that's um, a, a disagreeable proposition. So my answer would be, okay, in that case, uh, um, to introduce tax cuts, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat from the fiscal policy front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, the uh, the notion, though, the argument that I always get, uh, Marshall, when I say they should have left the zombie banks go, I mean, that's certainly consistent with free market capitalism, but the argument that I always get, and I get it from some pretty some pretty well-placed Wall Street types uh, that, I, that I proposed that to uh, at, a, at a luncheon at Scarsdale Capital recently in New York, and uh, and, and the thing I get is, you know, well, we would have had things would have really been bad. They would have been worse than the 1930s if we had done that. But you, yeah, I, I tend to agree with them. And, but but my my point is that, um, you know, we had a history in the 1930s uh, where we actually did nationalize a number of the banks. I mean, if you read Jesse Jones's uh, uh, history of the Resolution Finance Corporation. We um, closed a number of the banks down. We declared bank holidays. We uh, we got the examiners in to check the books to find out uh, what degree the problems were ones of illiquidity and what degree the ones were problems of insolvency. 
Um, and uh, we um, uh, effectively, the Swedes used our playbook in the 1990s. They effectively uh, nationalized the banks and, and spun off uh, what they call you know, it. Was a, we had a good bank versus bad bank approach. Um, my argument is somewhere between the hardcore free market stance and, and the, uh, the, the other alternative, which is that I, I take the view protect the depositors and uh, punish the shareholders. So I would have I would have guaranteed the deposit base and I would have actually um, wiped out the shareholders and probably forced the bondholders to take a major haircut as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the shareholders, uh, of course, the owners of the of the banks, uh, were not perhaps vigilant enough in making sure their management was uh, was behaving. Perhaps that, that's that's correct, um, and that's uh, that's partly a function of the fact that we have this. Um, um, uh, big problem of, of financial deregulation. We, we effectively eviscerated the, the regulatory agencies' budgets, and we also just took this view that um, somehow, if you just deregulated these these banks, that financial deregulation in and of itself was an unalloyed good that was going to cause uh, no problems. But of course, I think um, what happened was you had people that in, in other generations would have been engineers, and they became financial engineers, and they started developing all these toxic financial products that wouldn't have been possible under the old uh, type of. Uh, of uh, legislation that we had uh, following the, the, the New Deal. I mean, to me, it's no coincidence that we these major booms and busts, which, as you pointed out, have got worse and worse um, over time, um, have got worse and worse as uh, as, as um, financial deregulation has has, uh, has intensified. And by the way. Um, that is a problem which is uh, bipartisan. It started under Carter. Uh, it um, accelerated under Reagan, and it really accelerated under under Clinton and, and, and Rubin, who I think was one of the most awful Treasury secretaries ever, and uh, and certainly uh, more Wall Street centric than any Republican would have dared to have been. Why do you say Why do you say that about uh, Rubin? After all, the Clinton years were good years for the economy generally. Were they? Well, they were good years in one sense and bad years in another. I think this is another one of these myths. We we had years of running budget surpluses, which effectively constrained aggregate demand uh, uh, and and forced people to uh, uh, a, a much greater degree of reliance on private sector debt. So everyone looks at the again. This goes back to my point about looking at the overall sectoral balances. Yes, it's true. Governments ran surpluses during the late 1990s. And what happened, private sector debt went through the roof. And it's been private sector debt which has been the cause of the major bubbles we've had the last few years. It hasn't been a function of too much government spending. It hasn't been a function of fiscal profligacy. It's been a function of financial deregulation, huge buildups of private sector debt build buildup. And the private sector debt buildup came because I think these surpluses ultimately constrained aggr- aggregate demand and forced people into a much greater reliance on, on debt. And that, and, uh, that a lot combined with financial deregulation meant that the, the, the debt took on a much more toxic quality than it had in the past because you didn't just get uh, um, debt, but uh, you've got these horrible little mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations, all these financial Frankenstein products, uh, and, and not the least of which were these credit default swaps, which I think uh, should be uh, abolished. Um, um, that's, uh, again, an area where I part ways with the, uh, uh, with, with, with the free market tiers guys. I mean, some of them might say, well, you know, it, it's, it's okay to have them, but let people suffer the consequences. Well, my feeling is, you know, we regulate nuclear weaponry. And these are the equivalent of, of, of um, as Rowan Buffett said, financial weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, 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 and we regulate nuclear weaponry. Why shouldn't we do the same with credit default swaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the derivatives you're, you're speaking of. Yes, of course. And uh, well, you know, it's interesting what you say about the about the myth of the economic uh, success of the uh, of, of the Clinton administration. We had Lawrence Kotlikoff on this show a couple of times, and. Uh, he talked about how he and, a, and I can't remember the other uh, economist from 
um, from the West Coast uh, were advisors on the Clinton team, and they, they wanted the, the Clinton administration to come forward to the American people and talk about the off-balance sheet commitments to Social Security. Yeah, uh, he's, he's made these points many times. I, I happen to think that he's full of it, with all due respect. I mean, look, you can't compare... Uh, the, the, the notion of, of unfunded liabilities on the part of government is, is, is nonsensical. You, you have a monopoly issue of the currency, um, and I would add that this is uh, enshrined in the Constitution. There's a reason why private individuals are not allowed to create currency. That's a government function. So this notion that somehow um, you have an unfunded liability is nonsensical. I don't think there is a financial constraint, per se, to government spending. Do I think there's a real constraint uh, in terms of uh, too much government spending creating too much inflation? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always made the, the, the distinction. Um, uh, the, 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 the problem is our position tends to be caricatured as deficits don't matter and you can spend as much as you want, and that's mm-hmm. not our position at all. Our position is that you have to... Uh, assess government expenditures in the context of an economy, uh, the, the economic backdrop, rather, that if you have an economy that's running at full employment, that's got, um, you know, say, 3 4% employment and uh, unemployment, 90%, 95% capacity utilization, then clearly you shouldn't be spending as much. Uh, uh, the government expenditures should, should go down. And as a matter of fact, they will go down because what happens is if tax revenues go up, mm-hmm. uh, the automatic stabilizers, such as social welfare payments, go down, the deficits tend to shrink, and that tends to act as a fiscal drag on growth. It's self-correcting. By contrast, um, the notion that somehow we should just be cutting uh, government expenditure when you've got, you know, 10% uh, unemployment and by any honest reckoning, it's closer to 15%. You've got very, very significantly low levels of capacity utilization that somehow this is going to be inflationary or that somehow this is going to create a a solvency crisis is is nonsensical in my opinion. Mm Uh, so inflation is a constraint, you're saying, and inflation is a constraint, a natural constraint. In the absence of a gold standard, we have a, a global fiat currency system now. Every country, uh, no country is constrained by um, by any kind of a gold standard. So what you're saying is That's that, correct. Is that, but, is, uh, but some countries are, are still externally constrained. For example, uh, the system that the U.S. has is very different from, say, what the Eurozone has. Um, in the Eurozone, you don't have countries which issue their own currencies. They are functionally in their relationship to the European Central Bank, uh, much like uh, the relationship between uh, as a a U.S. state such as Massachusetts or New York is to the the Federal Reserve. They are users of currency. And and the core problem, this has, I think, been the core problem at the heart of the the European Monetary Union. You you don't have a countervailing fiscal authority to go with the monetary authority. And so um, these, these countries are, like American states, for example, reliant on uh, the markets uh, to, to fund them. And as the markets question their solvency, then they'll shut them down. But that's not an issue that the U.S. faces. It's not an issue that uh, Japan has faced, the U.K., Australia, Canada, for example. Mm-hmm. But isn't it, uh, but I mean, getting back to, to Kotlikoff's thesis and this off-balance sheet um, commitments of the United States, it is true that we have a rising uh, um, well, an aging problem, or at least I don't know if you'd see it as a problem. But I don't think it's an aging problem. I mean, we, 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 we uh, okay, we have uh, the baby boomers going through the, 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 uh, the system right now, and eventually they'll die off. And, you know, instead of building schools, maybe we have to build more uh, direct policy towards health care, uh, you know, health care facilities. I mean, you can easily redirect fiscal expenditures. But, you know, um, um, <laughs> and, of course, I'm not even counting the, uh, the millions of illegal immigrants uh, that, that are in the country, you know. So, I, you know, the, 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 the demographic profile, 
follow the country is changing. But uh, the U.S. can solve it. Uh, unlike uh, a country like Japan, the U.S. has by, by and large li- fairly liberal immigration policies mm-hmm. and could easily uh, deal with the demographics tomorrow by saying, hey, the, we're opening up the borders. Now, that has um, maybe adverse social consequences that people wouldn't like. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the demographics are massive. The problem is, is, is massively uh, overstated. I think that's a big red herring. Mm-hmm. Okay, because, so for example, take two million Mexicans. Tell them you, they can get green cards if they buy houses in 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 Michigan, for example. There, you solve two problems at once. You solve the demographic problem and you solve the housing problem. We can buy a house in Michigan for about ten thousand dollars these days. There you go. There you go. So, um, I, <laughs> so you get enough of them. Obviously, I'm being somewhat facetious, but I think it illustrates yeah. what I'm talking about. Hmm. Well, so, uh, you know, getting back to your comment on Europe a minute ago, you said the disconnect between fiscal policy and, and monetary policy, uh, because, you know, they're not, because of the different, uh, the different states within the Euro, Euro. Yeah, they, they don't, Greece, Portugal, uh, Italy, and indeed even Germany and France do not create their own currencies. Now, uh, the, the reason that the, the, um, the Euro has not fallen apart already is because the ECB has, has done something which it thought it would never do, which is that it has, um, started to buy the bonds in the secondary market, in effect creating new net Euro, uh, financial assets, um, to help um, uh, ensure that there is a bid placed on these bonds and thereby encouraging the uh, market participants to fund. But the, they're, they're doing so at a cost of demanding increased fiscal austerity on the part of the, uh, of the individual member states for, for whose bonds they buy. And that's turning out to be counterproductive. So you're seeing a situation like Ireland, for example, well, which um, continues to do exactly what uh, is being demanded of them. They're cutting government expenditures ruthlessly. The economy continues to contract aggressively, and the budget deficits as a percentage of GDP uh, is, is going up inexorably. So it's, it's a hopeless situation. You've got to let these um, countries breathe a little bit. You've got to let them grow um, so that uh, they can actually start to, uh, to fund these debts. Mm-hmm. Um, so applying the same logic uh, to the United States, as I understand, your earlier argument is that the U.S. has been, uh, its fiscal policy has not been stimulative enough, and we're relying too much on monetary policy to do everything. But now, uh, Marshall, I remember, you know, one of the ideas of the Obama administration when he first came in was that we needed to uh, to address infrastructure concerns, infrastructure needs in the United States. But it seems yeah. so difficult to direct fiscal policy in, in that direction uh, it takes a long time to get it to happen, yet, uh, and, and the other, and that's one concern, but also, you know, as a, as a free market guy, I wonder about the, uh, again, this, this concept of malinvestment, political corruption, and so forth, that sort of directs things uh, to, you know, bridges to nowhere or or that sort of argument. What do you? Well, that's a problem. But uh, you know, I, I think you drive along any uh, any any street in New York City, or uh, ask anyone who's driven across a bridge in Minnesota in the last few years whether you think our infrastructure is in good shape. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, the the the, the, the uh, notion of of, of huge. Uh, uh, infrastructure projects uh, in the United States. It has a long and glorious history. We started in the days of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, we had the uh, Erie Canal system in the uh, in the early 1800s, which transformed trade patterns in in, in the U.S. and created a boom of time in, in, in the Midwest. Um, we did it under Roosevelt. Uh, a huge amount of infrastructure during that period. We had the the highway program introduced under uh, Eisenhower. So it has been done before, and it's been done in a bipartisan fashion by both Republicans and Democrats. We didn't really de- devote that much towards infrastructure. Truth be told, I mean, you know, we we and uh, and 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 of course there was this 
it was never clear whether you wanted to uh, use the the what infrastructure money there was for a quick fix. I you know you you fix potholes where there's, there's not the, the the you get people back to work quickly, or do you do it to fix some of these longer term concerns like you know build some new airports or build some high speed railways or 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 or, or, or um, some new um, proper. Uh, um, bridges somewhere. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I think it goes back to the point I made earlier. We had the situation where we effectively created this halfway house where we did a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and didn't achieve much in, in, in aggregate. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's probably difficult to do, again, within the political situation. I'm, I'm sure that politics always plays a role in those. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we could have done it before. Probably it would have been more likely when we had a a fully democratic um, Congress, Congress, but uh, even there, it was uh, it, it turned out to be problematic, and it's certainly not going to happen now that we've got all these um, these, these um, Tea Party guys um, that um, have such a prominent role in the in the House right now. Mm-hmm. Well, Marshall, I found it interesting to talk about the your idea of a tax uh, a tax um, a tax refund or a tax cut of two trillion dollars. Interestingly enough, I've had one one person on my show, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh who's argued exactly for that, that we, rather than bailing out the banks, if you had sent money back through the tax code or into the hands of average and, and lower-income people, that you would have been able to stimulate the economy from the bottom up. I think he's absolutely right about that. The, 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 the critical conceptual flaw at the heart of the Obama administration's approach to the banks, and it's a problem the Bush administration had as well, is this top-down, somehow that if you shovel money over to the banks, uh, that, that somehow the credit will trick it trickle down and, and everything will be okay. Well, there's, there's, there's two problems with that. First of all, um, uh, the, one problem is that, as we've discussed earlier, that the banks themselves have questions as to whether they're actually solvent or not in, in, in any honest accounting sense. Um, and, the, 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 and the second point is that you know, you, uh, a, a contract, a loan, is a, is a product of a contract between a borrower and a lender. You need to have a solvent lender, but you also need to have a borrower who is able to sustain his or her debts. You can only do that in the context of a full employment economy. If you have a full employment economy, uh, you have job growth, you have uh, growing incomes, you have people who are better able to service their debts, and therefore they become more credit-worthy customers. As I always like to say, um, credit follows creditworthiness, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the other point I would, I would make is, is that um, in, in, in any case, um, we don't want a credit-based economy. We want an income-based economy. Mm-hmm. You know, credit is fine. Uh, sometimes you need some credit to expand businesses, but at the end of the day, you want job growth and income growth. And, and the other point I would make is that a full employment policy is also a financial stability policy, because mm-hmm. if you have full employment, it means that people aren't in a position where they have to take on marginal debts to sustain their lifestyles. It also means that they are able to service their debts. It also means that the banks don't have to write off their debts, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, it creates all kinds of uh, beneficial aspects. But we, we took a very Wall Street-centric approach to, to mm-hmm. deal with this problem rather than a Main Street-centric approach. And why, Marshall? Because we have a Democratic presidency, uh, a president, we had a Democratic Congress. We well, because the Democrats are just as bad as the Republicans right now. That's the real reason. I mean, and, and you know, it, look, it's, it's, it's uh, the Republicans maybe are the party of, of Halliburton, the oil service companies, and the, the, the defense complex. The, the Democrats have become the party of, of, of Wall Street. That's where they, mm-hmm. their, their main funding sources. So mm-hmm. to follow the money, this is ultimately not an economic problem. It is a political problem. Mm-hmm. It could be solved through some form of political reform. Um, the sorts of things that I would advocate are not things which I think would find favor in, in, by, with most Americans, but I would publicly fund uh, elections. I would 
um, uh, develop um, independent commissions to uh, redistrict the uh, the constituency so that you don't have this insidious practice of incumbents gerrymandering their districts to ensure perpetual uh, elections. I'd probably pay uh, a congressman uh, more money, as, as unpopular as that might be, mm-hmm. but with the proviso that they can't take any more private money so you don't have this, uh, this pay-to-play system. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Um, is a very extreme version of, of, of this. I mean, granted, pu- private money plays uh, a role in, in influencing political decisions in other countries, but nowhere near to the degree that um, it does in the U.S. I mean, I, I'm, I'm Canadian, as you, prob- as you probably know, mm-hmm. and I grew up in, in a country where no question that the banks are powerful, but uh, they also are much more strongly regulated uh, than they are in uh, the U.S., and the degree of influence that uh, the banks have in the uh, U.S. Uh, would be unfathomable in Canada because I just don't think that the uh, the political process is set up in such a way that they could buy their way into the, the, the extent of power and influence that they have in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly seems to me uh, in Canada you have a bigger part of your of the income of the of the national uh, gross national product would be from real wealth creating activities. I would argue that mining and energy um, production is a big part of uh, is, is a basic wealth creating activity. Uh, and uh, so you think that there's anything, I mean, like if the banks are able, I believe, the way, they, uh, the, the way things work out here essentially is that when you have fiat money in the hands of, of the banks and the government, uh, that you have the ability to reallocate wealth from those who create it. And I argue, I argue, I don't know if you'd agree with this, that miners, manufacturers, inventors, farmers, people that actually do things of value for people, and I see the the guys that find the gold in the ground or the copper or whatever, uh, the engineers, the geologists, uh, are not really getting – they're not making that much money. Who's really making a lot of money? No, uh, the partly because, they, as you know, a lot of them are crappy-run businesses. They haven't got a, con- a clear on how the concept of return on capital or equity. They just dig holes the whole ground. But well, that's, that's true, Marshall. But, that, but, that, but that aside, no, but that's, yeah. a, but that's a private you know, private sector business. You know, People are free to make decisions, and, they want, and if they're going to blow through their budget, they go bust. That's fine. We're yeah. not asking them to be to be bailed out by any terms. So, so look, I agree with you. I, but honestly, I don't think the, the concept of um, – of a uh, of fiat currency per se has much to do with it because look we had financial frauds and we had this kind of you know uh, malign influence on the part of the bankers uh, in, in the U.S. Um, while we were under a gold standard sure, as well. Sure. Um, um, we had Andrew Jackson's famous um, fight with uh, Nicholas Biddle, the Bank of the United States, in the in the mid 1830s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had the invidious influence of J.P. Morgan, uh, uh, the, the first J.P. Morgan, who essentially could have shut down any government he wanted to shut down. So uh, he was really the the shadow shogun behind the, the, uh, the, the a bunch of weak presidents in the in the late 19th century. Uh, we had five depressions. I mean, now look, the, the, there are some benefits to a, a, a gold standard in the sense that um, it takes away a lot of the political discretion that uh, uh, libertarians in particular don't like. But let's not pretend that it's this you know the, this this glorious panacea that doesn't have its own problems. We had five depressions in the in the 19th century. We had a major depression. Uh, uh, well, the Great Depression itself was conducted under a gold standard. So I'm not sure that that necessarily the, the issue. The issue of fiat currency, I think, gets bundled up with, with the, the issue of political corruption, and I'm not sure that they are as um, 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 should be tied up as, as, as closely as they are in the, uh, the eyes of many. 
Mm-hmm. It's an ideological thing. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, certainly, human beings don't change whether we're under the gold standard or the fiat currency. Yeah, and and and, and if you actually look at the history of the gold standard, uh, uh, people like Mark Lavoie, an excellent economist up at the University of Ottawa, have written some very very good uh, works on this and shows that there was countless numbers of times where uh, banks constantly cheated uh, and, and evaded the constraints of the gold standard system on the, during the so-called halcyon period of the 19th century. So mm-hmm. it's not been, um, I, I think people tend to look at the gold standard uh, with, with a degree of, of rose-tinted glasses. Now there are some, I, I have, um, you know, my, my very good friends, uh, Lee Quaintance and Paul Brodsky uh, at, at, at uh, QB Partners, really clever guys, uh, probably the smartest, amongst the smartest people I know, uh, they've made the point to me, well, you need, uh, you, you, you need to have a um, a 100% reserve backed uh, system backed by gold, and he said that would solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And my argument has been, well, maybe uh, I, ha- I haven't seen a historical example of that, but in any case, um, the degree of scrutiny uh, and regulation you would need to enforce that kind of a system would be so intrusive that it would be very much at variance with their own libertarian philosophy. So, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's six of one half dozen of yeah. the other, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Well, there's there are no easy solutions, perhaps. But I no, have absolutely. To ask you this. Uh, we, uh, you know, in this populist move since uh, the post Lehman Brothers decline, I'd say it gathered a lot of steam. The Tea Party uh, arose from it in part. Uh, there is an end of Fed popularity, really, and uh, yep. so we have Ron Paul, of course, who has been advocating ending you know, the Federal Reserve for decades. Uh, yeah, and I, I have a lot of uh, respect for Ron Paul. I think he's a politician of, I don't always agree with him, but I, there's no question that a, that a man who never votes for one congressional earmark for his district is a man of considerable principle. So I, I do have a lot of respect and time for him. Well, then on the other side of the, uh, of the poli- political spectrum, perhaps Dennis uh, Kucinich, who I think also has a, a, a pretty high level of integrity. There may be a lot of people yep. listening to this show that don't like me, hear me say that. But Dennis has also come out with an end the Fed bill, and he would have Congress uh, controlling uh, the, the money uh, supply then. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm... I, I have no problem with the concept of a federal bank. I would substantially restrict the Fed's mandate. I basically, I think they should be there to uh, to deal with the, you know, to maintain a reserve rate. Uh, look, the the other the other way, the more radical approach you can take is that you keep uh, rates basically at zero. That you don't reward uh, rentiers for with any kind of an interest rate, uh, and that you use um, fiscal policy to control uh, aggregate demand. In other words, when the economy gets too hot, instead of raising interest rates, you raise taxes, and mm-hmm. when it gets too cold, you you you, you lower taxes, and you keep rates at zero and kill the rentiers, as, as, as Keynes would say. I mean, why, why should anybody uh, uh, necessarily um, get, get a, a, an interest rate from the government just for, uh, as a reward for savings? I mean, if, they, if people should be free to do whatever they, they want with their money, but I'm not sure that necessarily it serves everybody's interest uh, to, to have this kind of a system where um, uh, the, 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 the banks and, 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 and bond markets have, have, have this much, are, are effectively given this gift by the government, because that's all it is. The bond is, is ultimately not something that's used to fund your expenditures. It's there to, to it's, a, it's like the equivalent of a CD. You know, you're rewarding a saver. You're saying, here, your money's in our re- reserve account. We'll give you um, X percent more if you stick it in a reserve, in, in, in a treasury account. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, uh, that's all it is. It's a reward for savings. And so um, maybe the, 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 the approach is that we just um, use fiscal policy uh, as, as a means of regulating demand and keep the, the, the Fed's role to a bare minimum. Mm-hmm. So, are you well, saying well, uh, no, no, no chance in, in in our lifetimes of this happening? By the way, but that would be my preferred approach. That's, 
and so I don't just so I don't under I, I want to make sure I understand you. You're you're saying that savers should or should not be rewarded. Favors should not be rewarded, but I, I, I would maintain that favors by the very act of, of, of giving an interest rate um, uh, is, is, um, uh, is actually rewarding it to, to, to certain people uh, um, and, and, and entrenching the interests of, of, of finance uh, to, the expense, uh, to the extent of, uh, uh, of other sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is sort of a core difference, though, between the Keynesian view and the Austrian view is that where wealth comes from, right? I mean, it's the savings is, is so important to the, in the Austrian model. Well, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, um, I guess. Um, but I think if you actually look at the way uh, things are actually done in our current system is that, um, you know, uh, savings don't just sort of come out of, uh, of nowhere. They, they Ultimately, you have a situation where, um, the only entity in in the uh, um, uh, uh, in our economy today that actually creates new net financial assets is the government. The government spends money by crediting bank accounts. It, it, it destroys money by debiting bank accounts. Um, but it is the, it is the monopoly issue of the currency. Now, what people choose to do with that money um, ultimately in the real economy is what generates profits, investments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But ultimately, um, uh, to, to me, uh, expenditure creates its own savings. I think is what, what, what Keynes said. And, and I, I don't think um, you know you can. There, there's not a finite pool of savings out there that's uh, that um, um, as, as many of the uh, the, the pre 1930s uh, economists would say. Um, I, I think that's a fundamental misconception that a lot of people have. When we're talking about interest rates, I, I think uh, I mentioned earlier the long the long bond, or maybe it was before we went on the air. We've had a a, a really decades long bull market in the long-dated U.S. Treasuries. Yep. At the time when the U.S. is going out and borrowing huge amounts of money right now, the Federal Reserve, uh, well, for, for the deficits that we're running, and the Fed is printing huge amounts of money, do you think, uh, are, are you concerned at all that this bull market in, in the long-dated Treasuries could be short-lived from here on? Well, first of all, I would, I, I would uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people um, are mischaracterizing the Fed's activities, and I'm, I'm not saying this to defend the Fed, but for example, you, you, the, the, the printing of money, a lot of people are saying that's coming from quantitative easing, and, and I, my point has been that all the function is happening with quantitative easing is that, you know, the, 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 the Fed is buying bonds and, and, and swapping it with reserves, so it's, a, it's an asset swap on the, on the bank's balance sheet. It's not actually fundamentally changing the quantities of money. Um, what, what I think has happened historically over the last few years is that the so-called much of the so-called shadow banking system has now started to appear on the uh, the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve. It was in the shadows beforehand, um, but I don't think as, as the Fed backstopped it. But I don't actually think a lot of that is new net uh, uh, financial assets. So I think that that's 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 one point. Uh, that's one key point I would I would make. So, uh, but in, in regard to your broader question. Um, Am I worried about inflation? Uh, not yet. Um, uh, I, I recognize that um, you know food prices and higher energy prices are a big problem, and I think the Federal Reserve, like many other countries around the world, have, have played a, have played a, a, an important part there. But if you don't have um, job growth or income growth, 
then ultimately um, you could make the case that these kinds of rises are uh, deflationary mm-hmm. because um, as you um, spend more for your essentials, you have less for your discretionary items. And so mm-hmm. um, and that's where, where I think the people the things are right now. Now, um, as far as the, the long bond goes, yeah, we, we've had, as you said, we've had a tremendous uh, 25-year bull market in bonds. Uh, it could be drawing to an end. Uh, I can understand why uh, a, a, a bond investor might not find it particularly appealing uh, to um, pay uh, 10 years uh, to get obtain an interest rate of 3.5% at, you know, for 10 years or whatever that, that, that might be right now because he, he just thinks the risk-reward is not heavily skewed in his favor. But um, that's ultimately a, uh, a private portfolio preference shift. I don't think that has really anything uh, much to do with, you know, what the Fed does or doesn't do. I mean, at the end of the day, um, the the... the uh, the central bank could easily calibrate its demand, uh, its, its, its maturities to match the demand in the market. So if, if people wanted just to uh, have shorter dated instruments, they could um, have shorter dated instruments. You don't have to issue as much uh, uh, 10 or 30 year papers. Um, that's, that's in fact uh, something that um, Professor Charles Goodhart, who is a former member of the uh, Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, suggested a few years ago. Do you worry about uh, the deflationary? Uh, do, you, do you worry about deflation? Uh, Bernanke was obviously very, very worried about it uh, in 2002 when he wrote a paper. Deflation. Yeah, making sure it doesn't happen here. Here. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would worry about it only in the sense that um, uh, if we, if the, uh, if we get to a stage where you get significant cuts in federal expenditures at a time when the economy is still not strong enough to withstand it, then yeah, I, I think that there is a, a chance uh, that, that 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 things um, could go off the rails, um, and um, and and that we could actually have a. Um, a a very, very significant uh, new uh, um, uh, deflationary episode. So, look, I look at it this way, uh, Jay. If households attempt to net save by spending less than their earning and businesses attempt to net save by reinvesting less than their retained earnings, the nominal incomes and real output will likely fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, Money incomes and economic activities uh, will tend to contract until private sector savings preferences are reduced. Um, again, with essential goods and services taking up a larger share of household income as income falls or until depreciation leaves businesses and households inclined to invest once again in durable assets. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, common sense suggests that a drop in private income flows while private debt loads are as high as they are right now is an invitation to debt defaults and widespread insolvencies, unless, of course, some um, creditors are willing to renegotiate existing debt contracts en masse, which they haven't demonstrated any mm-hmm. uh, capacity to do so, or the government uh, spends money to offset the impact, which is what they've been doing. But, but to me, this is not um, uh, uh, Keynesianism. This is uh, double-entry bookkeeping. Um, it's uh, the call it the tyranny of double-entry bookkeeping. It's something we've had in effect for seven centuries since the time of the Medici's. It's nothing new. And uh, um, if you can find another way to, uh, to, um, to describe this phenomenon, then I'm all ears. Okay. Well, certainly uh, the Austrians, of course, would, would look at it the other way. They'd, they'd think that while it might be painful in the short run to have savings, that that's what we need to do. So I, I guess there's... Well, I, I guess I, I understand that. That's their view. But to me, uh, you know, if you uh, um, are, are constantly uh, engaged in this debt deflation spiral, I mean, to me, ultimately, uh, you, 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 you extinguish a lot of assets in the process of doing that. Now, maybe they would argue that, you know, if, if you... Um, uh, um, have enough of debt repudiation, debt defaults, and it's effectively destroyed that, that creates the foundation for a new rise. But, um, you know, creditors are going to get screwed for sure under that sort of environment. Hmm. 
Marshall, uh, we're just about out of time here, but I'd just like to get your thoughts on the equity market. Uh, wh- where would you be putting your money these days if you were an average uh, American that has some some retirement money set aside? Would you be in the equity market? Would you be in foreign stocks? Would you be in precious metals? Where would you be? You know, it's a bit tough right now. I mean, I, I was a lot more bullish about the market last year. Um, um, uh, look, I, I, I like you. I think that the the conditions for a new bubble are being recreated right now. I think we have very very low interest rates, but and we have uh, relatively good uh, corporate uh, pro, uh, levels of profitability. But we don't have um, particularly strong aggregate demand. It's, it's okay. So there's no need for businesses to deploy their corporate savings to reinvest in, in, in plant equipment, etc. So what they're likely to do with, do with that money is um, engage in a, a series of stock buybacks um, um, because a lot of CEO uh, pay packages are predicated on that. And um, so I can either, and, and that combined with the uh, prevailing low interest rate environment, I think um, creates a, a fairly benign environment in the short term. By the short term, I mean you know, for the duration of this year, maybe a little bit into next year for the uh, for the equity market. You you may have some pops along the way, uh, some drops along the way rather. But um, I can easily see uh, the the market um, you know appreciating another ten fifteen percent this year. Um, where I would have it, well, it seems to me that with what's going on in the Middle East, that um, energy uh, strikes me as being a, a good area where you've got a structural bid. Um, especially now that this, this problem that started in Tunisia is now metastasizing and spreading to places like Libya, which is a significant oil producer. It's not just mm-hmm. Egypt is not, but Libya is. So to me, that's much more significant. Uh, you probably want to be concentrating on um, on countries like Canada, which um, do um, have assets which uh, provide the energy security that the uh, the Western world certainly is going to crave. Um, I think you'd want to be looking at other alternative forms of energy. I think uh, uh, uranium is likely to be an increase in the important areas as, as more of the world uh, moves towards uh, nuclear um, Gold, sure. I mean, it, it may not do much this year, but um, it's, it's ultimately a vote on, uh, of no confidence in the official sector. And given that you have a, a situation where um, people are losing confidence in the so-called omniscient and on, on, omnipotent uh, central banker, and you have a situation where you still have this built-in structural fragility in the, in the European Monetary Union where you, you, the, the possibility uh, of a currency literally vaporizing before our eyes. I don't think that's the most likely scenario, but it's a possibility. It does mean that there will be some sort of insurance bid under the gold market as well. So I would say that um, you know gold, um, energy would be good areas, um, um, but um, um, uh, probably by the end of the year you'd want to be looking more at, uh, at, at um, building up some cash levels again would be my guess. Marshall, I want to thank you very much for sharing your, your ideas. Really interesting, fascinating view, a little bit different than a lot of the people we have on this show, but that's what makes this show interesting is to have a variance, variance of ideas. I want to thank you. Tell the people uh, that are listening where they might follow your work. Well, they can read it. Uh, uh, I, I, I post a lot of stuff at, uh, at uh, www.newdeal20.org. That's all one word, newdeal20.org. If you uh, click under my name under Brain Trusters, believe me, I didn't choose that name, but they <laughs> they could they could have uh, more uh, articles by me than they 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 probably would want. I, I suspect a lot of your Austrian audience will be, uh, be be sickened by reading it, judging from some of the comments I get. But uh, you know, it's always fun to have this uh, uh, friendly debate. Uh, it really is in, in this context, and uh, it's a great credit to you that you uh, do host uh, such a multiplicity of, uh, of of economic and political viewpoints on your show. Well, it makes life interesting, that's for sure. From John Perkins to Ron Paul, no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you again. You're really some interesting ideas, uh, and I don't think that we're 
as far off as 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 you might think. I think in many no, ways. No, no, I I I, I, I think I've said this to you before, Jay, but I think we've got the we have a situation now. It's not really left and right anymore. It's ins and outs, and I think that's the way the battlefield is going to uh, play out over the next few years. And and the populists on the left, I think, are going to find more common ground with the populists on the right than they will say with the uh, mainstream Democrats or the mainstream Republicans. I think that's the way uh, the, the 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 political bifurcations are are likely to develop in the next few years. No doubt about it, and we're hoping to get Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul on this show again sometime in the near future. So uh, thank you again, Marshall. We'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with my partners, investor extraordinary Chen Lin and Roger Wiegen. Also will be joining me to talk about China, Europe, the U.S., and various market and money-making ideas. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 